Father, we, we do want to ask you to bless our country. And Father, we cannot pray together for God to bless our nation because we think we deserve it. But Father, because we desperately need it. And Father, we ask you to bless our nation. Lord, give us opportunity to be a witness to our neighbors, to our loved ones, to our friends and co-workers. Lord, may we lift up the hope that every person in every nation in the world, the only hope that we have, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may that be our case this morning. Bless now as we open your word, that, Father, you would have uh, for us, we know that you do, what we stand in need of, apply to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Take your Bibles and let's go to Colossians chapter number one this morning. And I say again that we will actually finish a chapter of Colossians, not this week, but we will finish one. Um, so we're going to get through it. Um, it's my practice to go uh, and set aside two or three days for the purpose of outlining where we're going to go next, uh, whether it's through a book of the Bible or a series or whatever. And so I'll spend some time outlining the book of Colossians, and I did that a few months back and went through and outlined the entire book, and I said, well, we're shoot for this verse on this day and this verse on this day and try to get through it in this many weeks. And uh, inevitably, I am far too ambitious with how fast I think I'm going to move through a book. And, uh, and I've proved to be too ambitious with the Colossians as well. Not moving through it as quickly as I thought we would, uh, but not disappointed by that either. And uh, looking forward to this text this morning. If you found your place in Colossians chapter number 1, we're going to read together verse 19 and read down through verse 23 this morning. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. When we come to any text of Scripture and we're studying the Bible, it's very important that we not rush past what the text means. And a lot of times what we want to do is when we say, well, we read a text of Scripture, now, Pastor, what this means to me is, and we run into what it means to us. And it's not wrong to ask what a passage means to us, but we don't want to get there too quickly because before we can answer the question, what it means to me, we have to answer the question, what it means. And we have to know what a text means and how it applies, first off, to this context so that we can understand what it means to us as we make our application. You know, and we as a church, last week we, we looked at the very last line, and it was that in everything he might be preeminent. And it is my desire, and I believe the desire of the people of this church, to see Christ be preeminent in all that we do. And a church is not going to show Christ preeminent because we sing songs that exalt Christ only. Uh, it's not going to show Christ preeminent because we have preaching that talks about it only. Regardless of how uh, faithful we are to sing songs or faithful we are to preach, that is not going to make Christ preeminent. Christ becomes preeminent when he's preeminent in the lives of every person that is sitting in the pew. 
And as each person is walking in a way that makes Christ preeminent, then the church begins to demonstrate that Christ is preeminent in all. And that's, that's the heart of this text, is that Christ would be lifted up. And so we opened last week of verse 15, if you remember, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. And we see him on display right off the bat. We see him lifted up in these grand statements about who Christ is. And then we ended that talk, uh, that passage of Scripture with verse number 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that's what we want him to be in all things, that he would have the preeminence. And so then this morning we open up with the word for. The word for here literally means because or in light of or a better way to say it, this is why he must be preeminent. This is why Christ should be and is preeminent in all things, whether we recognize his preeminence or not. He is before all things. By him, all things hold together. So why is this the case? Well, he's going to talk about the work that he's done. And if you'll trace with me through the text here briefly uh, as, as a means of introduction, I want you to see the first thing is verse number one, or verse number 19 that we looked at. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so the first thing we see is that he is preeminent because in him, the fullness of God dwells. And we see almost bookends here with he is the image of the invisible God. The, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we see those theological statements, these factual statements about who Christ is. And so he is preeminent because in him fullness dwells. He is preeminent because through him we are reconciled to God. Verse number 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then finally, in verse number 22, we see before him. In verse 22, he is reconciled uh, in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And this is where we stand. We stand above reproach before him, that we can stand in his presence. And these are the reasons why he must have the preeminence. This is why he is preeminent, because of the work he's doing. And so as we walk through this, what we're saying is, no angel could do this work. No derivative of God can claim this. He stands alone in himself. He is God all by himself, and he is the only one that is worthy of our praise and our worship. So we see God's cosmic power on display. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead, and we see his cosmic power in these previous texts, and now we turn to the personal application of these cosmic themes. Just as this creation that we live in today is not seen yet to be reconciled to him, neither can we see ourselves fully reconciled to him. You ever look at yourself sometime in your walk with God and think, how can a Christian behave that way? No. Well, you're just like the first service. Nobody felt that way about themselves. All perfect Christians in here. Um, the fact is, it, <laughs> Brian's like, yes, of course. Uh, but the, the reality is we all struggle with that at times, do we not? How, how can we who believe the Lord Jesus Christ think that thought or say that word or act that way? And we see the rebellion of our own heart that continues to rumble. And we see the rebellion of the world around us. Even the natural world continues to rumble. As a matter of fact, Hebrews gives us a little window into this. And I'm going to turn there if you'd like to join me. But Hebrews chapter number 2. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2 gives us just a word about this. And I love the wording uh, that is put together for us. He says in chapter number 2, in verse number 8, 
verse number seven, he tells us that he's made Christ a little lower than the angels and that he has uh, condescended himself to the role of humanity and stepped into humanity and they've crowned him with glory and honor. And he's, he's quoting from Psalms chapter number eight. And he said, putting everything in subjection under his feet, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And so everything is in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You and I are under his control, right? And then what he says next, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we look around the world today and do we see a world that is in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Do we see a world that's doing everything it should do the way he wants it to be done? No. At present, we do not see this. Why? Because we're in the middle of the already but not yet of salvation. That yes, he has defeated the enemy. Yes, he has redeemed us by his grace. But not yet do we see these things taking place. And so what are the next four words? And I love the way this opens up. But we see him. We see him. So we look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the hope of this world being reconciled. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our hope of being reconciled. And it is only in him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so he's going to reconcile or make right these things by the blood of his cross, which we're going to see just shortly. So... We see Jesus in the midst of this troubled time. We see not our own sinfulness now, though we see our sinfulness, but we look to Jesus. In the midst of our doubt, we look to Jesus. In the midst of a broken world, we look to Jesus. All of these things are seemingly competing arguments for the gospel. And what do we do in the face of these competing arguments? We look to Jesus. So I want to organize our thoughts this morning about three words that are in our text. I want to first off talk about fullness. The fullness of God dwelt when it was pleased to dwell in him. So we'll talk about fullness first. And we, we looked at this last week, so I'll not belabor that point too much, but I do want to touch on it. Secondly, I want to talk about the word reconcile. And then finally, let's talk about the word if. And these three words are in our text, and I think they give us a little bit of a construct or a skeleton with which to walk through our text this morning. First off, fullness. All the fullness of God, all the divine attributes rested in him and continually always have been in him. This is the idea that he was holding on to the fullness of who he was. He had the fullness of God. And look what he says again. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now what is the implication of this? This word fullness is, is a play on words that Paul is using for us. The false teachers had been teaching the idea of a big God pouring out power into little g-gods, and they were all derivatives of God, and they were a means to get to God, but each of them had a little bit of power, but not fullness of power. And the word for all of these deities and powers and spirits that they, have, they were pushing, the word for that was plethora. And where we would get our word plethora from it. And it's the idea of the multitude of. And here's the word that Paul is saying, in him is plethora. 
That he is fullness. There is nobody outside of him. He is fullness all by himself. He is the fullness, the plethora of God. Everything is contained in him and in him alone. Not in a multitude of little g-gods. Not in a means of coming to him in ourselves. But it's in Christ alone that we find the fullness. Paul said it dwelt in him. Now we could belabor this point and no doubt there's much more that could be said on him. It's interesting that it was pleased to dwell in him. And what did our Lord hear from heaven on more than one occasion? This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And we see it the very second time, hear ye him. Not angels, not saints who have gone before, but hear ye him. And places the fact that he is the fullness of the Godhead. The second word I want you to see is reconciling. Don't get excited. The next two don't go as fast as the first, all right? Um, they will take a little longer. Reconciling. The Father is reconciling all things through his Son. This is the work of reconciliation. Work, look what he says in verse number 22. And has he now reconciled in the body of his flesh? Uh, verse number 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the word reconcile here means to back together again, to make whole. It's two friends who are having an argument and you come in and you play peacekeeper and you bring them back together and you reconcile the relationship. It is someone who is at odds and there's a reconciling going on. So this is the work that the blood of the cross is doing. And, and let, let's look at the scope of the reconciliation first. What is the scope? It is earth and the natural world around us. Look what he says. He says, through him, verse number 20, he to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. That everything, earth and heaven, are being reconciled by the blood of the cross. Now, earth makes sense to us. When we look around this world, we do not see a world that is in subjection to our Lord. We see tornadoes and hurricanes and we see buildings that collapse and we see death that comes and we see wars that come and we see all the, the, the tragedy that happens on this fallen world. And ultimately, if you trace it all back, why do we have this tragedy? We have this tragedy because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. All of that is because of this fallen world. And many times people will say, well, God, why don't you do something about this? And we as believers can stand boldly and say he has. He has done something about this. He has died on the cross, and he is redeeming even this very world back to himself. Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 22. I'm going to turn there real quick, and if you want to, you can join me. But Romans chapter 8, we see this statement again about him reconciling the world to himself. And in verse number 22, um, we see this. For we know that the whole creation hath been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the spirits, groan inwardly as we wait eager, eagerly for the adoption of sons and the redemptions of our body. And what is he talking about? This creation that we live in is groaning. We are groaning. How many of us today, we experience the groaning of saying, Lord, when will this old flesh be done away and we can worship you without the struggle of this old body? When will this world's sinfulness and brokenness be gone and we can say you are worthy and we can mean it without any mixture of sinfulness in it? And this is the groaning of creation. 
that it is waiting for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ makes the new heaven and the new earth and all things are put right. This is what we're waiting for. Now, he mentions the word heaven, and he said not only in earth and in heaven, but I, 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 I don't know that I quite comprehend the full scope of what he means and that he's reconciling heaven to himself other than possibly what we're referring to here and I think is right is that the battle of the satanic world against the the forces of God will be done away with. And that the enemy will be set down and that the battle will be over. And that he is making it right that no more will there be a struggle anymore, but he will reign supreme. And this is the work he's done by the cross. And by the way, the enemy's greatest place of defeat is at the foot of the cross. Is it any wonder that that's their greatest place of attack? that the cross would be under attack. We sing about this restoration. We sing about it every year. We sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. And really, we sing it at Christmas time, and it's not a Christmas song. It's actually a kingdom song, and it talks about him ruling and reigning and how that he has come to the earth to rule and reign. And he says in the second verse, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his righteous known far as the curse is found. And one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will step onto this earth. He will rule and reign. The curse will be no more. The lion will lay down with the lamb. And everything that this old planet is groaning with will cease to groan. And it will all be made new. This is what he's doing. This is the work of redemption. And by the way, that is what is included in his cross. Now we move to man. Not only the scope of heaven and earth, uh, but we also see men. Now, really, this is an amazing thing because when you look at even the earth obeying God's will, when we look at stories in the Bible of God speaking to the natural world, the natural world obeys him at a moment. It is man that rebels against him. It is man that opposes him. Verse number 21, we see this, that he's doing a work of reconciling those who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, all the way from the alienation of verse number 21. And then look at verse number 22, what he's doing with his reconciliation. He says this, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what he's doing. He's taking us from enemies to before him. He's taking us from alienated from him to citizens. And th- this wording before him, what an incredible phrase that we're going to stand before God. And it makes me hearken back to the psalmist when he said, who can stand in his presence? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Well, who here has clean hands and a pure heart? Who could stand in his presence and say, my hands are clean, my heart is pure, let me stand in front of your presence and stand before a holy God. But there was one who had clean hands and a pure heart, and he took our place for us and allows us now to be cleansed by his sacrifice that we could stand before God with clean hands and a pure heart. This is the work and the scope of his reconciliation that he's bringing enemies back to him. And every reference to reconciliation in the Bible between God and man, it is God that, makes, that takes the initiative. We were alienated. We were away from God, outside looking in. We were hostile in our minds. The idea hostile is to hate. It's to be at enmity with God. 
This is what we were. We were doing evil deeds. This was the essential character of our nature, is that we were doing evil deeds. Now, this rubs wrong against the natural man today. Don't ever get the idea somehow or other that man was apathetic toward God. Rather, he is at war with God. Man is not standing back and being just some way just passively against God, but no, he is opposing God. The Bible even says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And, 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 and when, when a man claims that there is no God, he's purposely walking outside of the logic God has given him and denying the existence of God, therefore rebelling actively against God in his denial of a God. It's impossible to look at the created order and not see a God. We saw on Wednesday night that how could it be possible that the trees happen by accident, but the book of botany about the trees was done on purpose. That makes no sense. God created it, and the evidence of his creation tells us that men have been turned over to the reprobate mind because they don't want to believe the evidence, because man is rebellious against a holy God. This is what man is doing. John Stott helps us with this, and he says, fallen man is therefore is not therefore good at heart. This is important, and I think a fundamental theological point here is that we get the idea somehow that man is basically good. And it affects the way we look at systems, the social systems in our country. It affects the way we look at our child rearing. Here's the thing, parents. The goal of parenting is not to keep your kids innocent because they're not. They're your kids. How could they be, right? They've inherited all of our sinful nature. That is not to say that we don't set boundaries around our kids. That is not to say that we don't have rules to protect them. It is to say that we do that. But here's the thing. You can have all the rules you want, and it's not going to fix their heart. Because their hearts are desperately wicked above all things, and it was born in them when they're cute and cuddly. They still have wicked hearts. And here's the reality. You know that by the time they're two. That they have wicked hearts. And the reality is, what our job is to tell them is that we have wicked hearts, and without the redeeming, reconciling work of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for them. And we must point them to the only hope that we have, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not just about setting up boundaries, though I'm for boundaries. We must set boundaries and preach the gospel to our children. And what is the purpose of the law? Not to make us holy, to show us that we're not holy. Because it is the work of Christ that makes us holy. And so this is what we're trying to accomplish. Several years ago, I saw a picture. And it really describes, I think, the, the evangelicals missing the point on this. A picture, if you would, a, a little ravine of water running through, and obviously the water is getting faster and faster, and there's a cute little puppy stuck in the drain. He's got his foot caught in this drain. He's trying to get out. And it's just a cute little, you know, drenched puppy. I mean, just adorable, right? And then you got a group of guys on the bank, and they're locking arms going down trying to get the puppy out of the drain. You know, and they're risking life and limb to help this puppy. And here they are reaching down trying to get it, and then somebody super inscribes over top of it, you know, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, us. You were not a cute puppy, stuck in a drain. That picture would probably be better if it was a ravenous wolf at the bottom of the ditch trying to bite the hand of the man who was pulling him out of the ditch. 
then you might get a little closer to the idea of what it looks like for God to reach down and redeem us. He was not reaching down, taking cute, cuddly me, because I was, so com- I was so worthy of his compassion that he brought me to him. No, I was an enemy of God. And this is, when we, when we make salvation about God giving human compassion, we miss salvation. His compassion goes far beyond our understanding of human compassion to where we might look at something helpless and want to redeem them. But we were not this helpless person that was waiting for somebody to come to redeem us. But we were enemies of God, opposing God's plan. And yet he comes in and he takes the alienated, he takes the evil workers, and he makes us holy, and he makes us before him. This is the work of redemption that must be grasped by the church. And when we miss this, I think we are in danger of missing the gospel as a whole. He said, what is he going to do with this? He's going to make us holy, set apart, saints, consecrated unto God, blameless, without spot, above reproach. There's no one to pick our flaws apart. Completely pure before him. Our change in positions results in a change of heart. This is what God is doing in us. And, and here's the thing you got to see. God is not saving us from the wrath of Satan. Let me say that again because I I feel like we sit in church and this bothers us just a little bit when I say it. God is not saving you from the wrath of Satan. He is saving you from the wrath of God. It is God's wrath that is being justly poured out upon man. Man deserves the very wrath of God. No man walks up and looks at God and says, I don't deserve this. There's only one who could have said that truly, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I don't deserve this, and he could have said that, but he didn't. He said, Father, not my will, yours be done. And God poured out his wrath, the wrath that I deserved on the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he poured out that wrath on him, that established his preeminence because he then resurrected victorious, and only in Christ can I be saved. The greatest Old Testament picture of this is the ark. What a picture it is, and there's many other pictures we could go to, but the Old Testament picture is that God was pouring out his wrath upon the world. And what does he say to Noah? The Bible says about Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah didn't put grace there, he found grace there. Because that's the only place we're going to find grace. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he built an ark, and for over a hundred years he preached and invited people to come to the ark. And the only way anyone would be saved is that they came into the ark of salvation. And by the way, the only hope of our salvation is we come into the ark of Jesus Christ. By faith, we enter into his finished work and we are reconciled to God. So we see the scope of his reconciliation. And we see that when we change this change of heart, Stott tells us that he who loves the Lord will come to hate evil. That there would be a change in heart. And so not only do we see the scope of reconciliation, but we see the means of reconciliation. How did he do this? And we've mentioned it already. By the blood of his cross. It is only through his death, his burial and resurrection, that you and I are reconciled to God. It is in the body of his flesh. And it's noticed here that he basically says, in his flesh of his flesh. 
of his body of his body. He's trying to emphasize the fact to these that are believing a false doctrine that God truly did become flesh and died in our place. And he's emphasizing the substitutionary atonement for you and I. That God stepped into humanity, took on our sins upon him. All the guilt of my sin was placed upon him, and he died in my place. This is what he did when his blood was shed. It was shed on our behalf, and there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. You say, well, pastor, doesn't it sound a little bit awkward to say that something had to die so we could live? And it just seems so far into our thinking, especially the more secular we get. Well, that's just kind of, that's just kind of morbid Christianity or morbid religion. And the reality is you're going to go home today and you're going to sit down at a dinner and you're going to eat something that died so you could live. And it is fundamental to human nature to understand that something has to go away so that I could live. And Christ died so that we could live. And he communicated this plan to us that we might perceive the love of God that he died in our place so that we could have life. The humanity of Christ is on full display. The sacrificial death, the substitutionary atonement. This is the work of the Son to set the record right with the Father, to bring himself, so to speak, to the table. Then we have a work of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, he talks about this word reconciliation at length here. And I'm going to turn there very quickly just for, to read it for you because I don't want you to miss this. But in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, if you want to read with us, you can. He says, and this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has reconciled us or made us right with him, made us one again, and now he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a message. And here is the ministry of reconciliation that Christ took our sins. It's been paid for and now the work of God is finished. The offer of God is extended and we have the ministry of reconciliation. And what are we doing with our family and with our friends and with our coworkers and with our neighbors? We're going to them and we're pleading with them, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Too often, if we're not careful, we believe it is a supernatural work of reconciliation, that only God can do the saving, but he has still given us an ambassadorship to go to a lost world and tell them that there's only one ark of salvation. Come to Jesus Christ and him alone. The means of reconciliation is only Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to the word if. I want you to think of two words in reference to this, and we'll come to the end, and we'll bring these back at the very end, secure and assured. Now, this word, if, when we're reading this in Colossians, I, I don't know if it bothers you, but sometimes it sits a little awkward with me when I read it. Hold on a second. I thought salvation was by grace through faith plus nothing, and now he's saying I have all these things if. 
So is this conditional? If I continue, so if, if I don't continue, I don't have these things, uh, what, what do I have to do to make sure I'm continuing well? And we can wrestle with this. And it's always important, and by the way, this is one of the reasons why I think it's important that we preach through a book of the Bible so that we don't get to ignore these things. That we have to come face to face with them and we have to say, why the if? Now, I believe first off and foremost that we are secure in the finished work of Christ. That I'm not sitting here today wondering if I can keep my salvation because here's the reality, if it was up to me to keep it, I would lose it. I am set it secure in him, but I think Weiss puts it in pr proper perspective for it. When he writes, he said, it is not the retention of salvation that is in the apostle's mind, but rather the possession of it that we would be shown by their continuance in the gospel. That the possession of faith is shown by the continuance of the gospel, that we are grounded, that we are settled. So salvation this morning is secure because what Christ has done. There are many warnings in Scripture, though, against false conversions. There are many warnings that would say, do you really believe? Make your salvation sure. Make your calling and election sure. And this word, if, comes to us to remind us that there is only one ground of hope. There is not multiple grounds of hope. You see, I believe this morning it is possible to profess salvation but not possess salvation. And I think many profess with their lips a lip service to salvation, but do we possess that because it's what Christ has done in us? The warnings are clear in Scripture. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not many mighty works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you cursed into iniquity. I never knew you. Now, in this warning, I find assurance because he doesn't say, I knew you and I forgot you. He said, I never knew you. And so there is a sense in which we understand that when we are known by him, when our names are written down, we are secure in his work, and we can rest in that. I don't believe you can be unborn again. John 3 tells us being born again. It's not something I can be unborn again. He said in verse uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed to the day of redemption. Sealed. The idea here is that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the purchased possession, Ephesians 1 tells us. That I'm holding on to the Holy Spirit in promise of the fact that God is going to finish the work that he started in me. So I'm secure. And one of my favorite is uh, John chapter 10 and 20. He, I am in his hand. His hand is in the Father's hand. And no man is able to pluck thee out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We are secure in the work of of Christ. We can rest in that. So what are the if? We may see man in time, and we do. We see religious leaders now deconstructing their faith, generally religious celebrities, if I could. And by the way, they're, they're, stop, not in my notes. Let's stop with the Christian celebrity nonsense. Let's thank God for faithful servants and I wouldn't give you a nickel for another Christian celebrity as much as I would for the ladies who come to our prayer group on Tuesdays. Back to my sermon. We're too infatuated with popularity, far too infatuated, because we're too American and not Christian enough. This is 4th of July. Here I am being mean. So let's stop. All right. Um, back to my notes. We see man in time, fickle as they are, changing their minds and leaving. 
I'm going to put that in scare quotes, leaving the faith. And yet God sees from eternity those who are secure in his plan from the foundation of the world. And we can rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing and he is calling the people to himself and he is securing those who believe. And we need not worry over people that we appear to see, well, man, they seem like they believed and now they've walked away. God is not rattled by the latest musician that has left the faith. Not rattled by it in the least. God is still God. And we can rest in that. Those at Colossae were being presented with false gospels and Paul is telling them what Christ has done for you is the only grounds of assurance. If you move away from Christ, you have no gospel. There's no other place to go. If we do not continue with him, there is no other hope. John Stott helps us even further when he says it is to be unmoved and immovable, this is what is being called for here, in the face of strong winds of new doctrine, to stand firm, not just when people would deny the gospel, but more subtly when they would improve upon the gospel. And this is the danger that we face in our day today, is that men would improve the gospel. And why do we improve the gospel? We do it because it's not marketable enough. It's not pleasing to man enough to hear that you're a sinner under the just wrath of a holy God and except you repent, you will likewise perish. That's not acceptable in this culture. And so let's just tell men that they're broken and in need of help and they need a little foot boost and Jesus is a good foot boost. Jesus is not a foot boost. He is not an assistance to eternity. He is the only ground of our hope and without him we will perish. This is the assurance we have. This is what we're called to do. Where can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So the word if. This is to say, you have this offer if you have faith in Christ alone. If you have left the teaching of Christ, there is no assurance of your faith. The grammar of this word would lead us to believe the writer was assuming that they had this faith and would continue in this faith. The condition of salvation has always been faith. It's always been faith. And saving faith is always enduring faith. Always enduring faith. This is not about our failings. How many of us have failed the Lord Jesus Christ this week? Yeah. We've come short time and time again. And I'm glad this morning that he's not putting a condition on our failings. Because here's the thing. Christ is doing the work of setting us apart. Look at verse 22 again. Who is doing this work? He has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who's doing the work of making us holy? The Lord Jesus Christ is doing that work. And yes, there is a sense in which we have a part in our sanctification. It's not let go and let God, but it's understanding that God works in us both to will and do of his good pleasure. And so we see both things in tangent here, but it is God that is doing this work that is bringing us along. And so we're not talking about our failings here, we're talking about our faith. Where does our faith rest? You see, saving faith is enduring faith. We are stable, we are steadfast, we are not shifting because we understand there is no other gospel. Paul is telling me and you then, and he's telling them then, that you cannot have Christ plus anything and still have the gospel. What is he arguing? He's arguing what we ended on last week. Christ must be preeminent. 
He is preeminent. He's the only hope. He's the only one that has the fullness. And so we rest in him and him alone. See, the gospel is not pray a prayer and then forget it. But we are called to hold to the hope and not be tossed about with false gospels. This continue. It's not a checklist of Christian behaviors. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't drink, don't run with those that do. That's not what we're looking for. It's not a checklist of Christian behaviors, but it is a call to believe the gospel regardless of what we see around us, that we hold to the gospel. Continuing faith, then, is the process of God taking alienated, evil men and women, transforming their hearts and their minds to demonstrate a lifelong hope in the reconciling power of the blood of Christ. I'll say it again, is taking alienated enemies of God, transforming their heart and their minds to demonstrate a lifelong hope in the reconciling power of the blood of Christ, so that even in the face of our own human frailty, and we are very aware of that, are we not? Or in the face of enemies' continuing lies, we remain steadfast, stable in our faith that Christ is enough. And by the way, church, this is his plan, not mine. It's for his glory, not our glory. And we rest in that. I have two illustrations, and we'll close. Neither one of these illustrations are original with me. D.A. Carson gave this illustration several years ago at, at a conference, and I heard it by way of video, and it just so fits this right here. And so you can go home and Google D.A. Carson in this illustration, and you'll hear it done better than what you're hearing it now. But he gives the illustration of the Passover. And the Passover is when the firstborn was going to die unless the blood be applied. And Moses had given instruction to apply the blood to the doorpost. And there was detailed instructions of the lamb being picked and it be a sacrificial lamb and it be a spotless lamb and it be applied and the meat to be cooked and the blood to be put on the doorpost. And then that evening, the death angel would pass through and if the blood was on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over. And he goes to give a story of two Jewish men talking the day before the death angel was to come through and this is hypothetical and he said, here's the story, you got Jones and Smith. And they're standing out talking, and Jones says, hey, tomorrow the death angel is coming through. Man, I'm really worried about this. And, he go, and Smith said, what, why are you worried about it for, Jones? And he goes, man, I, I don't know. It just seems a lot of crazy stuff is going on around here. I mean, all the plagues that have happened and everything, and now this death angel. And, and he said, well, what are you worried about? He said, you got the blood applied to the door, right? And he goes, yeah, I put the blood on the door. He said, you got the animal sacrifice. The meat's ready to eat. Your clothes are being ready to go. You're going to leave when God calls us to leave. He goes, yeah, I've got all that done. Everything's done. The blood's on the doorpost. And he goes, then what are you worried about? He goes, oh, it's easy for you. He said, you have three sons. I only have one. I mean, what happens if I, if I didn't do it right? He said, did you put the blood on the doorpost? Yes. He said, but I'm still nervous. And he said, well, you're not nervous at all? He goes, no, I'm not nervous. I say, bring it on. Let the death angel come. The blood's been applied. I've done what I've been told to do. I'm settled. Now, here's the question. When the night the death angel passes, which man lost their son? And the answer is neither. Because our hope is not on the basis of how fickle or unfickle we are. But our hope rests in the fact that the blood has been applied. That's where our hope rests. And this morning, we are not worried about how 
doubtful my heart may be at one time, the question is, is Christ my hope? And I run to that again and again and again. And when I, when I would waver, I run to Christ. And when I would sin, I run to Christ. And when I would doubt, I run to Christ. He is where my hope lies, in him alone. Brother Chachi and I, this is our second illustration. We went from D.A. Carson to Chachi. I have no illustrations this morning, and so I didn't even hardly work this week. Um, but we were sitting and talking through, reading through the text together, and we were talking about this word assurance and security. You know, you can be secure and not be assured. You can have a solid foundation but not know you have it. And here's the illustration that was used. He said there was raining the other day at their house. And as he heard the rain come down, his thought went, hey, is my sump pump working? Do I have flood insurance if the basement floods? And he's sitting there in the moment and he's wrestling with this in his mind. Does he have assurance in that moment? No, he's a little nervous, right? Because what if I don't have flood insurance? But the reality is he did have flood insurance. So was he secure? Yes, he was secure. It had been cared for. The contract was signed. He was covered. He didn't have assurance. So how do you go from just being secure to having assurance? You know what he did? He went and read his policy. And when you get the policy out and you read it, you now know you're assured of what was securing you. And this morning, the way you and I are going to have assurance we are settled and grounded upon the finished work of Christ. We are secure, but assurance comes when we get the policy out and we read it. And when we're in the policy, now we know what I am secured by because I'm reading. Isn't that what Paul's prayer was about? He said, here's my prayer, is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would know him. And we are secured by the finished work of Christ. We're assured when we know his word. That's where our assurance lies. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we ask you to do a work that only you can do. Father, this morning, we ask you that you would teach us, that we may teach the precious things thou dost impart. Wing our words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. Father, take what is said this morning and drive them deep in the hearts of your people today. Let's stand to our feet.